Hello and welcome to the second Christmas edition in the history of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is entitled The Way of the Bear. I began my Animal Wave season of podcasts this year with The Way of the White Moth, discussing the relevance of hope and self-protection. I drew my inspiration from an adaptation of Hesiod's story of Pandora from Greek mythology I heard on Marshall Cavendish's Storyteller Audio Magazine part work. As it so happens, this episode is also inspired by a traditional folk tale I first heard on this memorable fortnightly publication from 1983. Anyway, enough of the preamble. Please sit back comfortably as we take a look at A Christmas Story and the Gift of Self-Protection. I hope you enjoy the show. The story of the friendly bear tells the festive tale of Otto, a hunter who befriended a white bear. He decided to offer the bear to the King of Denmark as a Christmas present. Whilst on his snowy trek to the palace, he came across a cottage where he hoped he might beg shelter for the night. He knocked on the door, only to be met by a frightened cry from inside. Why are you knocking? You never usually bother. Otto discovers the house is occupied by a woodcutter and his family. The family are getting ready to leave the house for the nearby caves because they are cursed every Christmas Eve by a gang of trolls. The trolls would travel down from the mountains to wreak havoc on the house by smashing up all its contents, eating all the food and sleeping in the beds with their dirty boots still on. Otto says that he will happily stay in the house that night and after his visit the trolls will not return. The incredulous woodcutter agrees to let Otto stay and heads off out with his wife and children to the caves. The hunter curls up by the fire whilst the friendly bear goes to sleep under a table. At the stroke of midnight, the trolls descend upon the house. True to form, they raid all the food and wreck the place like prototypical Chris Columbus Joe Dante gremlins. However, as presumably Otto had predicted, they decide to turn their nasty attentions towards the bear under the table. Thinking it is a cat, a rather drunk troll starts taunting it and then one of them decides to push a hot sausage up its nose. The bear reacts with fury, sending the trolls flying out the door and then chasing them off into the mountains. News spreads fast through the troll community to leave the woodcutter's house alone on account of their terrifying pussycat. The woodcutter is overjoyed and after clearing up the carnage, they repay Otto and his bear with food and are able to enjoy the rest of their Christmas and those to come in peace from the trolls. Otto goes on his way to the king. I tried to trace the origin of this particular story, and I thought it was Danish due to Otto's destination. However, it turns out the story is Norwegian, which would account for the trolls, and takes place in the mountainous region of the country known as Dovrefell. Its common title is The Cat on Dovre Mountain, or The Cat and the Trolls, or The Bear Trainer and His Cat. Having bear trainers in my family, the last title intrigues me the most, and makes more sense of the synopsis. Although, that isn't to say a hunter couldn't also be a trainer. This story sometimes has the hunter-trainer called Finn, and other times just says that the man came from Finnmark. The bear was very likely a polar bear, and provides us with an example of this most powerful of land predators being presented as a protector. Its actions that free the woodcutter of his annual Christmas curse is somewhat comparable to the way Jason and his Argonauts chased off the harpies who were sent to torment the blind Phineas in Greek mythology. The bear in this traditional Norse Christmas story is a great power that can eliminate the bullies, 
just as persecuted children might rely on an elder sibling or their protective parents. Famously, comic book writer J.O. Barr wrote in his seminal work, The Crow, Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. We can see an example of this notion in the way that many a childhood crisis or even a minor trauma can be resolved through the divine intervention of a parent. Much like the white bear of the folktale, the parental figure of authority is called upon once a child faces something they do not feel confident they can handle. The parent is the force of good that can instantly quash evil. They are the child deus a mechina in literary terms. The mother has nursed their offspring from birth, steps in to press the restart button, returning the child's perceived chaos back to a comfortable status quo, in much the same way episodic children's media and fiction is written. However, parents with a keen eye on helping their children develop will see certain incidents as opportunities to teach a child so they might have a better chance of handling their challenge without help in future. I chose the title of my self-protection course in its accompanying book, When Parents Aren't Around, for good reason. Ultimately, the best way to make children effective in their personal security and self-defence training is to teach them the importance of taking charge. However, there is another vital element that needs to be involved, the parents themselves. This might seem like something of a paradox, but the best way to take mummy or daddy away is through parental support. When looking at such an approach, I cannot help but see the bear as the spirit animal for this particular topic. These animals are often metaphors for strength, and what better source of protective strength can one want than a caring mother? My animal training father had a particular fondness for bears, but he was quick to point out that the only animal attack experienced by his mentor, my grandfather on my mother's side, came courtesy of a polar bear. Bears are highly intelligent, have ape-like dexterity, give only the subtlest of warnings compared to most other predatory mammals, and famously do not change their facial expression. Nevertheless, my father trained several polar bears and there was immense sadness in our family when we lost the last of these back in 2014. Many humans have an especial awe for bears that stretch back to prehistoric times. Bears often appear on lists for the world's greatest apex predators. Although only making up nine living species, their family is widespread, occurring in Asia, Europe, North America and up into the Arctic Circle. Having evolved over 30 million years, bear iconography features heavily through the history of humanity. Needless to say, they were here a long time before us and our various cultures often reflect a type of reverence for their ancient standing. Their size alone makes them seem mythological. Our ancestors cohabited the earth with the now extinct cave bears, gigantic creatures that are comparable in size with today's Kodiak bears, for around 291,000 years. There are contentious arguments put forward by some historians that hunting these great animals and the use of their skulls in funeral rites was a large religious practice of both humans and Neanderthals. We named two constellations after bears in the northern sky. The shape drawn from the connecting stars resembles the most significant land predator of the Arctic and largest member of the Ursidae family, the previously mentioned polar bear. Despite the fearsome reputation of this great animal, the polar bear not only scores high on the list of the world's top predators, it is also considered to be one of the best mothers. Coincidentally, for the timing of this podcast, polar bears typically give birth in December or January. Cubs are born blind and helpless, relying completely on the care and nutrition administered to them by their mothers in their den. There they will stay until they grow from weighing around the same as a guinea pig to as much as 30 pounds before emerging from the dens. However, unlike many parents, the cub's safeguarding does not greatly reduce at this stage. Far from it. For up to three years, the mother bears assume the role of the cub's protector and teacher. Here the cubs are kept close by, with the mother clacking at them if they wander too far away. 
Mothers have been known to fight off predators and even much larger male bears from their still developing offspring, even when a cub is dead. Under the mother's mentorship, the cubs will learn how to hunt, swim, dig dens deep into the snowdrifts and migrate. Much of this is done by mimicking the mother's actions. When the time comes for the mother to breed again, the cubs are driven off by the new mate. A new cycle begins for the mother whilst the cub will have experienced an abrupt shift in direction and is now reliant on the matriarchal training it has received. The evolution that has allowed the polar bear to be such an effective predator must be testament to the training installed in these animals during their three-year mentorship. After all, polar bears do not usually give birth to large litters. They most commonly birth twins or singles and only occasionally up to four cubs. The entire natural cycle of polar bear parenting provides us with a good allegory for teaching realistic self-protection. It makes us consider that moment when an individual has their skill set tested. How good was their mentor? How beneficial was the training? If a polar bear cub does not receive enough adequate training, they're likely to perish when those life skills are required. Might the same be also said for those who put their faith in a training system and or teacher. A child's earliest memories will often be linked to a time when their fight, flight or freeze instinctive responses appear to have a hotline to their parent. Over time that line will be severed as the child wishes for more autonomy, more independence and more freedom. However, many grow up on the mistaken instinctive belief that the hotline is still in operation, albeit hidden away in a dark secret room, safe from the eyes of one's peers and behind glass, break in case of emergency. The time to break it might arise when the friend is too drunk to stand and the grown-up child needs to get home. When funds are low, when the police arrive, when the love of their life turns back into their school bully, when life is suddenly too much. That crumpled adult that feels utterly defeated in the face of the ugliness of the world might as well be a grown-up child who has smashed the glass and hit the button only to realise the line is no longer in service. There is something quite remarkable and unique about specific training when it comes in the form of pressure testing. At one end of the scale, these activities can be seen as little more than play. Think of the various chasing games that children learn during their first years at primary, junior or elementary school. These instinctive activities have numerous potential benefits, although scientific evidence backing up some of the most popular explanations as to why humans or any animals play is surprisingly thin on the ground. As a self-protection teacher who is keen to deliver accessible yet realistic training exercises for children, I'm a keen cultivator of such games to use as a means for better skill development. When the principles of certain specific training activities are applied to adults in the form of asymmetrical pressure tests, the emotional impact can be a lot more severe. Years ago, I ran a series of simple pressure tests as part of a one-hour free spot at a martial arts expo. The point of the exercise was to get everyone present into an immediate understanding of the typical dynamic of non-consensual violence. Of course, there were plenty of flaws in the exercise that we acknowledged before we began. Firstly, the violence or fighting that was about to be experienced was not really non-consensual because everyone there had volunteered to attend and could leave at any time. Secondly, this was not really an anything-goes event. Nevertheless, the tests would be one minute in length in order to promote the urgency and explosiveness of the fight, full contact in nature, with one side restricted to grappling and the other permitted only to striking and anti-grappling tactics. These restrictions force the asymmetrical nature that comes from fighters who have different objectives. The result is not scenario training that recreates a delusion of reality, but an exercise that replicates the dynamic of an assault situation. After we finished these tests, I listened to the feedback from those who had participated. Most told me that the intensity was very different from even heavy sparring or competition, and they understood the message I was trying to convey in the short workshop. However, one of the younger fighters did not say a word. Instead, 
The look on his face immediately evoked my empathy to the extent that no further communication was required. He was probably not much more than 16 or 17 years of age and had been training in martial arts for a while now. The look he gave me was a look we all have seen before and can trace back to our childhoods. I could relate to it the first time someone hit me full force in the face with intent a year or so after I got my black belt, the first time someone caught my kicking leg and unceremoniously dropped me on my ass. the first time I received leg kicks, the first time someone pulled a loaded gun on me and asked if I was bulletproof. There were many other instances sandwiching these moments. I knew the look well. The look told me that the psychological armour he'd built up over the years in his chosen martial art and protected his self-esteem through his adolescence, helping to distance him from earlier feelings of insecurity, had been stripped away. He was suddenly feeling like a disempowered child. The event had provided him with a stark reminder of what it felt like to be vulnerable again, and his mind was clearly in conflict with what he experienced, and his surface belief that his training would adequately prepare him for the realities of violence. Not long after I ran this workshop, I was in a discussion with a group keen to create a corporate course with me. One of the clients had an extensive background in the military security and combat sports. When it came to the matter of discussing developing the right attitude, I described what I often saw in my pressure tests, mentioning the previous experience as a typical example. I was trying to convey that moment when an individual hits a crossroads that provides insight into his fallibility or the fallibility of the way he trains and can either double down on denial, reconcile his cognitive dissonance or push hard into the sharp edges of pragmatic improvement. The client gave me an expression I now have often picked up on, taking away mummy. I took away little from that actual meeting. Indeed, the course with them did not materialise. However, that expression pretty much summed up what an honest self-protection teacher does with their clients. The sad irony here, of course, was that the teenager in question had probably taken on a martial art with his parents' full approval and under the understanding that it would better prepare him for the realities of a violent situation. He was now a bear cub that had had exposure to the wilderness and his skills were found wanting. At the risk of repetition, attitude is core to self-protection. Without it in place, everything else we build in our training, no matter how lofty and impressive, will be without a durable foundation. There are countless witness reports provided by victims of violent crimes who fail to act upon their acute sense of awareness. That is attitude. Attitude runs through all personal security and self-defence skills giving individuals the courage to avoid potentially bad situations and yet, when given little choice but to fight, to never give in. Such a mental outlook is born out of a variety of factors that come under the nature and nurture discussion. But desensitisation and familiarity through conditioning is a factor we can consciously control through training. Taking control is at the heart of successful self-protection. All decisions and tactics taken by a person who wishes to reduce personal damage to themselves or those they have chosen to protect need to be guided by a proactive attitude, with all the damage caused by the pseudo-scientific, quasi-religious and outright snake oil produced by a good amount of the self-help industry, I have become wary of using words like proactive. It was the first of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In response to its overuse in self-help and actualization movement, Nick Webb's The Dictionary of Bullshit has the word proactive defined in his chapter on corporate bullshit as so much clunkier than just doing something. Nevertheless, it is difficult to otherwise easily convey what seems to be blindingly obvious when getting on the proverbial front foot at all times when faced with a crisis. Self-protection situations might be ranked in descending order of incapacitation, starting with approaching a potentially hazardous place to being an injured hostage at the seeming mercy of a predator. 
From these two extreme ends, we need to be asking the tough question of what can I do in order to take control? Such a question will require a good degree of creativity balanced with practicality, but above all, it will require an action-orientated attitude. Logotherapy psychoanalyst pioneer Viktor Frankl is possibly the patron saint of proactive thought in the minds of many. His stoic response to losing his entire close family, save for his sister, and life's work prior to his final internment at Auschwitz has been met with contrasting views. Some Holocaust analysts have strong reservations about the confirmation bias that runs through his memoirs in Man's Search for Meaning. He uses the various anecdotes in an attempt to prove his logotherapy theories. Psychoanalysis on the whole, as started with Freud, is under a lot of sceptical criticism in the scientific community. Looking beyond all of this, however, Frankel's accounts have practical value for us that somewhat tie up with the way of the white moth. Although instead of presenting hope, they argue for stoicism. No matter how helpless one might feel, chances of survival in a seemingly helpless situation are probably improved, without guarantee, if one simply soldiers on impassively. I accept different approaches work for different people, and I've heard varying arguments from individuals who have been at the proverbial coalface far more than me, but I've tended to lean more towards detachment from emotions than summoning up feelings during a crisis. This takes genuine self-sovereignty. Child self-protection is a process of learning such independence through training and embracing the lessons in everyday behaviour. Young children should have discussions about who are the best strangers to contact for help, rather than just the stranger danger gimmick. They should learn about making eye contact with bystanders and also setting examples to help contribute towards defeating the bystander effect in their local communities. Gavin de Becker describes a training process parents can do with the children where a child is sent into a shop to ask strangers where to find certain items. Under the watchful eye of the parent, the child then returns and explains why certain strangers were chosen. Various people watching exercises are also important, as is commentary walking, both of which can develop a child's habit to take in their environment and surroundings. When a child is growing up, they're likely to assume their parents' protection will last forever. They don't see protection as a changing element. Yet the baby's travel seat has to change as the infant grows. Eventually it will become a booster seat until the child reaches a certain size and then it will be a case of the child simply wearing a seatbelt like everyone else. However, there's another element to this protection. There comes a time either during the booster seat period or soon after that the parent will need to be confident their child can put their seatbelt on alone, especially when travelling with someone other than their mother or father. Likewise, self-protection training should be a progressive process where a child grows in confidence through competence. Returning to the pressure test, it's important to note that the asymmetrical predator versus prey exercises I regularly use to teach the unique dynamics of the assault self-defense situation was born out of a children's chasing game. These can be great methods for building up combative survival provided their purpose is regularly addressed. This part is crucial. If there's no discussion, and if the objective lessons of the games are not expressed throughout the training, then we run the risk of falling prey to the byproduct myth. Any game will become an exercise unto itself with little transferable benefit. Combat sports such as boxing, wrestling, judo, muay thai and Brazilian jiu-jitsu are especially rich sources for developing attributes. One of the key things they offer is regular sparring. Children need regular exposure to controlled sparring that contain techniques that do not require much self-defense adaptation. For all its limitations, there's a good reason why so many effective old-school bouncers had a good amount of experience in Western boxing. The grappling combat sports refine the basic human instinct to wrestle one another, providing great positioning tools. 
Muay Thai mops up most of the other effective tools missing from modern Western boxing and has excellent lessons on how to combine ranges effectively, such as clinching while striking. Above all, the drive of these classes are to create fighters for the ever-evolving full-contact arena. A regular component of a good club that teaches any of these combat sports is sparring. Above all else, this provides students with a degree of desensitisation to violence. Too many martial arts classes arguably make matters worse for their students by not sparring regularly or at all, or they fall into another category that offers the illusion of a pressure test they will always pass. Those who do not spar or undertake any form of pressure testing have ended up creating their own deluded reality. It is inevitable. They can and do check one another for not performing a technique correctly on each other. Indeed, they can be quite anal about this procedure, as refinement appears to be their objective rather than actual realistic application. However, without actual live practice, mutations will quickly take place, producing fantastical interpretations of actual violence. We see this a lot in systems that spend a disproportionate amount of time on fine motor skills, the type that typically diminish as a heart rate increases in a crisis situation unless they've been extensively training under pressure. Some embrace the concept of performance. Many Chinese martial arts practiced today have arguably had a strong influence from their native opera culture. Early 20th century critics like Tang Yao saw and wrote about the infectious dangers of flowery movements that were growing in popularity at the time in his native China. I'm not trying to discredit all Chinese martial arts. There is still a good amount of full-contact Chinese martial arts. Indeed, there is a burgeoning a movement of mixed martial arts um, in mainland China. And then, of course, we have their own form of kickboxing known as Sanda and also the traditional Chinese folk wrestling, both of which provide excellent attribute training in martial arts. But, of course, when we go back to more performance-based martial arts and those that perform what might be considered to be a type of mutual meditation, I don't have any problem with them, provided they are only being practiced for their own sake and with full honesty. It's when those who teach and train delude themselves that arts of this nature offer a good preparation for dealing with an assault that I think it's necessary to speak up. And indeed, this has been happening in China, uh, as a matter of fact, with a well-known mixed martial artist who has been involved in various challenge bouts with some traditional or quasi-traditional Chinese martial arts practitioners. I now turn my attention to clubs that spar occasionally ending up creating an atmosphere where many students fear sparring. I'm not sure if there's a correlation, but these types of clubs typically teach a type of sparring that also promotes flamboyance over practical effect. And I've often found that students who are not completely deluded by the lie being taught becoming more timid. Such sessions become dominated by the more naturally physically gifted, especially the most flexible and athletic members of the class. Fewer opportunities to spar mean more opportunities to avoid sparring. Techniques that are thrown against targets that do not fight back or are used in compliant drills or in dance-like sequences offer distractions from the fear of fighting whilst providing a type of catharsis. All of this helps create the paper wall that is torn down whenever these individuals face anything that remotely resembles real fighting, from a friendly spar with a boxer or wrestler to a close call with a violent bully. Going back to our way of the wolf mentality of promoting martial arts classes, we find that some teachers just pander to the demands of consumers who will be scared off by the prospect of having to fight one another in some way. It all comes down to supply and demand. It is worth noting that this fear is not artificially constructed. It is artificially cultured, however, in this type of environment. It is also a natural instinct, especially as we get older and the risks of injury increase, to avoid confrontation. Even our cousins in the rest of the animal kingdom tend to do their best to avoid physical conflict unless it is absolutely essential. 
predators select easy targets and use every advantage at their disposal to incapacitate their prey for consumption. Rivals of the same species will do their best to posture down and intimidate one another before they actually have to engage. We can see similar rituals with humans. The temptation is strong when providing a martial arts class. Just as it's easy for the parent to give in when their conscience tells them that they should be enforcing an important life skill or social principle, it's easy for a teacher and a student of any age to create a contract where they will create a delusion together. The student or consumer wants to say they train in self-defence via a recognised martial arts brand. The teacher or retailer is often only too happy to oblige. Taking mummy away is a truly empowering experience. It should not be a traumatic event. Rather, the best student shouldn't even feel mummy leave. The teacher and the parent should send their student or progeny into the world with the assurance that they are self-reliant. Sometimes this can be achieved through encouraging them to look after others. I'm very proud of the fact that I have students who have successfully defended the victims of bullies. We can see this sort of behaviour be demonstrated or germinated in the predator versus prey multiple attack pressure tests where students are built up to coordinate and plan with each other without notice as they defend against the predators. However, several of my students have stepped in and vanquished a bullying episode, even going so far as to taking the issue up with teachers post-incident, ensuring that the persecution stops. One child came to me as a private client due to some very severe physical bullying. The course of lessons were completed through a gruelling, untimed pressure test on the mats against an older, stronger and more experienced fighter. It was a fight the child was never going to win, but he kept on going with the encouragement of his father and me. Contrary to the philosophy behind the faux pressure test that students must constantly be given a positive experience, ultimately created in the form of a fight that they will always win, lest they lose confidence. This child left our lesson with an uplifting feeling that he got through an ordeal beyond what any of his tormentors had faced. I later received a phone call from a delighted mother not long after that lesson. Predictably enough, the bullies found him again and this time picked on his little sister too. The incident didn't end in a fight but the child faced off against the gang using the verbal skills he had learnt with full confidence he could handle whatever followed. The way of the bear is the way of guardianship, mentorship, leading to self-guardianship, and then the guardianship of others, short-term and long-term self-protection. This episode has its roots in child self-protection, but I hope it has also addressed the inner child we also face when it comes to handling the crisis of interpersonal violence. When I first made my decision to start Club Chimera Martial Arts and to make child self-protection an important aspect of that service, I was met with a large degree of scepticism. The story has already been told about corporate teachers telling me that teaching martial arts would be enough to instill confidence in children and that by teaching realistic self-protection, I was somehow undermining parents. Now I am booked to create programs especially for child self-protection. I have taught my martial arts internationally and most importantly I have received feedback from many delighted parents that my training of their children has been a success. Nevertheless, my decision to tackle self-protection in a direct and progressive manner in the same way as I tackle adult training has raised a lot of questions in the martial arts subculture and that will be something that I will be addressing in the next episode. Thanks everyone who supported the show and the Club Chimera Martial Arts brand this year. For those who haven't already, please rate and write a review on iTunes. 
If you've enjoyed this show and the ones that preceded it, a positive review and a five-star rating on here would be a wonderful Christmas present. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, Spotify, Buzzsprout, TuneIn, Altail, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the Club Chimera Martial Arts website. The next episode, our New Year podcast, will tackle a selection of awkward yet important questions commonly ignored by many in our subculture, but asked by listeners of this show. Therefore, although I had intended this episode to be the last animal-inspired title for a while, our turn of the year show will be entitled The Way of the Elephant. Thank you for listening. <laughs>